If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The stiff upper lip, you know, Englishman thought it was a bit strange for the for the prime minister to keep bursting into tears. I mean, imagine it. It's uh, you can you can see it at sort of key moments of the war um, when when he was cheered in the House of Commons. He uh, he used to start crying. It was um, considered that everybody notes it down in their diaries when uh, when he did, because it's uh, you know it's just not very British in those days. That was Andrew Roberts speaking about Winston Churchill. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Andrew Roberts, an acclaimed historian and author who specialises in the Second World War era. He's just published A Monumental New Life of Winston Churchill, and that was the subject of his conversation with our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. The interview took place at our History Weekend event in Winchester, where Roberts was due to give a talk on the wartime Prime Minister. So I'm at our annual Winchester History Weekend with Andrew Roberts, the author of A New Cradle to Grave Biography of Winston Churchill. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's great to have you on the podcast. So there have been many biographies of Winston Churchill over the years, and I think you speculate in in your book that there's been over a thousand. No, 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 I don't speculate. I've got an exact number. It's a thousand and nine, which is a bit nerve wracking in itself, isn't it? (laughs) Or hubristic. Now, Churchill is probably one of the most written about public figures since Napoleon, who was a hero of his, incidentally. But why do we need another biography of Churchill? What are you bringing to the table? Why did you want to write this? Pug Ismay, the chief of staff of Winston Churchill, when he wrote his 
memoirs in 1960, told President Eisenhower that it wasn't going to be until 2010 that a comprehensive life of Churchill could be written. And I agree with him, because in the last 10 years, we've had a cornucopia of new sources uh, that have been made available to, uh, to historians and Churchill biographers. And so I've been incredibly lucky to be spending the last four years working on these sources. And so there is an enormous amount still to say about Churchill. In fact, I would say that about half of the pages in this book have quotations that have never appeared in any Churchill biography before. So what are some of these sources that you've had access to that have been previously people haven't been able to see? Well, the most important of them, I think, is uh, King George VI's diary. Uh, King George VI and Winston Churchill had lunch together every Tuesday of um, Churchill's premiership, wartime premiership. And uh, during that time, he discussed with the king everything. Uh, he trusted the king implicitly. He told him about the ultra decrypts, for example, and the nuclear secret. And um, luckily, the king then went down and uh, wrote everything that Churchill had said. And uh, so we have new aperçus, new jokes, new uh, insights into what Churchill was thinking, literally every Tuesday of the Second World War. So that's one, which is, uh, which is great. Then we also have the diaries of Ivan Maisky, the, the Soviet ambassador from 1932 to 1943, who Churchill saw a lot of. And uh, uh, this too hasn't been made available until the last, um, the last few years. This is extremely useful. We've got 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill Archives, Cambridge. And uh, some of these are really important, like the diaries, the 1940 diary of Mary Soames, Winston Churchill's daughter. We've got now all of uh, Randolph Churchill's papers as well. And it turns out that there are several important letters, very important letters, that were um, in those papers but never were published in the official biography of Churchill. So that that's also a, a, a big extra archive. And finally, also, we have the, um, the love letters of Pamela Harriman, uh, Winston Churchill's um, daughter-in-law. And there are lots of references to Churchill there, as well as, of course, the other things that I found earlier in my career, um, such as the verbatim account of the war cabinet. So actually, we are inundated with new information. Mm -hmm. So the title of the book is Walking with Destiny, um, which is obviously a reference to Churchill's claim that upon becoming prime minister, he believed he was walking with destiny. Um, so what, do you think Winston Churchill was destined for greatness? And oh, whether or not I think he was is a very, um, is almost theological issue. I'm not sure I believe in destiny, but that doesn't really matter terribly much, does it? What really matters was that he thought that he was indeed destined uh, for um, not just greatness, but also a particular destiny. Um, and he also said in the second part of that quote that you were referring to, that all my past life has been but a preparation for for this hour and for this trial. And what I try to do in my book, um, Churchill Walking with Destiny, is to unpack that, to investigate quite the extent to which all his past life was indeed a, uh, a preparation. And um, 
I come to the conclusion that very much it was, that you can't understand at all the Winston Churchill of 1940 and 41 and so on, um, without really looking into the various aspects of his leadership, which he had, in fact, in some way or another, been honing for 40 years before he became Prime Minister. In what ways was he prepared to become Prime Minister and take the mantle? Well, you know, he although he didn't look like he was likely to be Prime Minister pretty much at any time in the 1930s, if you look back further in his career, he had held many of the really important offices of state that it was essential for a Prime Minister, a wartime Prime Minister, to have at least some idea of. He'd been First Lord of the Admiralty twice. He had been Chancellor of the Exchequer. He'd been a very important, uh, although short-lived, um, Home Secretary. And, of course, he'd also, in the First World War, been Minister of Munitions, where he was in charge of two and a half million people. He was the biggest employer in Europe uh, during the First World War. And so these allowed him to be a master of the sort of Whitehall machine. And um, so when he did become Prime Minister, he knew everything that uh, one needed to do in order to get things done in Whitehall. Okay, so this is a bit of a tough question, but do you think that everything that's great about Churchill comes down to his war record? Absolutely not. No, no, no. Um, There's there's a... Um, old Greek saying that people are broken down into foxes and hedgehogs. Uh, The fox knows one big thing and the hedgehog knows lots of little things. And the thing about Winston Churchill is he's constantly been mistaken for a fox uh, and that fox being the Second World War. But that's not the case at all. If you look at his his record, the time when much earlier in his career he was one of the architects of the welfare state, for example, nothing to do with the war, in his uh, time as... He didn't always get things right, of course, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, another really important job for a Prime Minister. Um, he put he had five budgets. He wasn't a great um, Chancellor, but nonetheless, you know, this is, a, this is an area that has got nothing to do with the um, Second World War. His success and his ability to uh, uh, fight and show bravery in the First World War, he went into no man's land 30 times, um, got so close he could hear the Germans speaking in their trenches. That was also an amazing preparation for the hour and the trial of the Second World War. And again and again, you see enormous uh, areas of life. He was the creator of modern day um, Jordan, for example. He was responsible for um, allowing Southern Ireland to, um, to become the Irish Free State. He had all sorts of things that he had done earlier in his career that were completely regardless of the um, Second World War made him a a serious and substantial figure. How do you think he would be remembered today if if he had not taken us through the Second World War? If he, say he had died in 1939, would we how would we remember? Would we remember him? Obviously, we wouldn't remember him with the same. He could have. He could have died on any number of occasions. He came close to death so many times. His close brushes with death um, are, are quite apart from in the wars that he fought. Um, the five wars he fought before 1939. He um, he was constantly um, getting into accidents and danger and and car crashes and plane crashes and the rest of it. It's extraordinary. He did survive until 1939, but if he hadn't, we'd have still remembered him as the man who made the great the Grand Fleet ready um, at the beginning of the First World War, who had. Um, 
as I said earlier, um, been one of the founders of the welfare state. He was one of the people who, um, who really made the political weather up to 1939. And even if he died in a car crash in 1939, for example, we'd still remember him as the person who was the first man to warn against Hitler. Of course. He was so out of step with other politicians when it came to opposing Hitler in the 1930s. What? He was like, he was different to the others. He was entirely different to the others. And that's one of the reasons that we should be reading books about him and being interested in him and still, and still you know, follow his career. Um, I think I put it down to three things. The first is that he was a philo-Semite. He liked Jews. He went on holiday with Jews. He appreciated what Jews had done for civilization. Uh, he just... He represented Jews, of course, in his um, early constituencies. He was a, um, a Zionist, indeed, and uh, was in support of the Balfour Declaration and so on. So he had a sort of early warning system when Hitler and the Nazis um, started to rear their heads in the um, in the early 1930s. And so he was able to, uh, to spot them for what they really were in a way that a lot of anti-Semitic... Um, politicians of the 1930s just simply couldn't and didn't. The second reason was that he was an historian. Uh, one of the reasons that we should all be proud of, uh, of history and BBC History magazine should be proud of what it does is that Winston Churchill was an historian and he could see uh, that Hitler was in the mainstream of the a group of people with Philip II of Spain, Louis XIV of uh, France, um, Napoleon, and then, uh, and then obviously the Kaiser, who wanted to hegemonise Europe. And his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, was the person who stopped um, this from happening. And so he had this, uh, and he'd written a four-volume life of, um, of his ancestor. And so he was uh, in a great position to place Hitler in his historical continuum and know that he had to be stopped. And the third um, reason, I think, that he was different from the others is that he had seen fanaticism really up close. He'd had a uh, friend of his sliced to pieces on a stretcher in the northwest frontier campaign by Pathan tribesmen. He had uh, charged in the Battle of Omdurman and, um, and had killed four dervishes in that uh, battle. You know, he had seen what, um, in this case, Islamic fundamentalist um, fanaticism was like, where in a way that um, the other prime ministers of the 30s, people like Stanley Baldwin and, and uh, Neville Chamberlain, Ramsay MacDonald really never had. Mm. And so I think when those three things come together, uh, the question of the Jews, the question of um, fanaticism and his own historical background, uh, he was in a great position to spot what kind of a man Hitler really was. How important was Churchill to preventing negotiated peace in 1940? Churchill was absolutely central to preventing the uh, negotiated peace in 1940. It was something that the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, whose biography I also wrote a long time ago, 30 years ago, uh, very much wanted. Other people in the government, like Rab Butler, also wanted it. But Churchill was dead against it. And, of course, he did have the support of Clement Attlee, um, the leader of the Labour Party, later Deputy Prime Minister, uh, and then after that, obviously, Prime Minister. Um, but nonetheless, in order to ensure that Britain fought on, you needed to have a, um, a, a strong Prime Minister who was dead against any kind of negotiation, and that was uh, Churchill. Mm -hmm. 
so the effect Churchill's father, Lord Randolph Churchill, had on him is, is mentioned quite a few times in your book. What was Churchill's relationship with his father like and how did it shape him? It's a theme that runs through the book. And because it's a theme that runs through Winston Churchill's thought and life and, and psychological setup. Um, his father died when he was, Lord Randolph was 20, it was uh, 45, and Churchill was 20. And um, it's a very weird process, frankly, because his father was aloof and disdainful, brilliant politician, but nonetheless also an extremely unpleasant man, quite frankly, on many, uh, on many levels, and was very unpleasant to, uh, to the young Winston. And some of the most moving parts of the book are, um, are these letters, these angry letters, which he replies to um, as lovingly as he can, and yet, uh, and yet he never gets appreciate the appreciation of his uh, father. So um, even after his father's death, he spent really a lifetime desperately trying to win the approval of his dead father. And um, and in 1947, so after the Second World War, he wrote a short story about meeting his father's ghost. And it's a very strange um, setup. Uh, he, um, he obviously, in the short story, his father still didn't realise that he'd won the Second World War. Uh, and, um, and so he adopted his father's attitudes, physical attitudes, and also his father's uh, political attitudes. He called his son Randolph. Um, he was constantly talking about his father. Uh, it was a tremendously powerful influence on him. The short story you mentioned, The Dream, which I actually read shortly before you came here to do this interview, it's a, it's a fa fascinating piece of work. It's like, it's it's very interesting how he reflects on his own actions. There's this bit where he talks about the suffragettes and his, his father sort of says, oh, what's what's the situation with um, suffrage? And, and Winston sort of admits that he, he sort of Quite like questions what he felt about it at the time and reflects on it. It's such an, an interesting, reflective piece of work. I'd love to know what a psychologist would make of that. Um, so moving on. For most people, when you think of Churchill, you think of Britain's defiance of the Nazis. But he was also this very emotional man. And at this point, I should probably shout out to an article you wrote in the November issue of BBC History magazine that people should absolutely go and check out because it's a great article. So the, the Prime Minister would cry at everything from pets to friends dying to, you know, he, he was very emotional. Weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs. Uh, he would, uh, he'd cry over the story of a noble dog struggling through the snow to its master. Uh, yes, it was, um, he, he was, this is one of the mistakes that people make in seeing him as a late Victorian aristocrat. Mm -hmm. Just because he was born in that period of the stiff upper lip doesn't mean that he had one himself. Uh, he was actually much more a throwback to the Regency period, much more romantic period, where people didn't mind wearing their hearts on their sleeves. In the um, great eight, uh, January 1806 um, funeral of Lord Nelson, all eight admirals carrying his coffin were in tears. And that's very much the kind of um, person Churchill was. Was this part of his appeal then, this emotional side to his personality? No, people didn't like it at all. These, the stiff upper lip um, uh, you know, Englishman thought it was a bit strange for the, for the Prime Minister to keep bursting into tears. I mean, imagine it. It's, uh, you, can, you can see it at sort of key moments of the war um, when, when he was cheered in the House of Commons. He, uh, he used to start crying 
crying. It was um, considered that everybody notes it down in their diaries when uh, when he did, because it's uh, you know it's just not very British in those days. You've dismissed the idea that Churchill had depression. Um, I mean, there's, we we know of this reference he made once to this black dog that um, sort of dogged him. <laughs> How did you reach this view that he? He wasn't well, suffering depression. Well, you were right to mention the black dog, but it's only mentioned once mm-hmm. by him um, in August 1911. And uh, and black dog at that time had a, sec- a second meaning. It was used by Edwardian matrons to explain their bad-tempered um, uh, ch- children that they were taking care of. So it's not... Um, uh, he did also reference um, depressions... But that doesn't make you a depressive. The times that he was depressed were times when anyone would be depressed. At the time of the Dardanelles crisis, again on great disasters such as the fall of Singapore or the fall of Tobruk in the Second World War, when frankly any prime minister would have been depressed. But the fact that he chaired so many, hundreds upon hundreds, of uh, defence committee meetings at all times of the day and night um, at uh, the uh, at the drop of a hat. You know, we don't have people around him, even his own doctor, who only mentions this depression concept a few times, um, saying that he was ever incapacitated. And depression, especially manic depression or, or bipolar, as he's been um, variously diagnosed, is a utterly um, debilitating illness. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You make no secret of your admiration for Churchill in your biography, but at what stages in his life can we call his judgment into question? Oh, again and again and again. He said to his wife, uh, Clementine, I would have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. And that is so true. You mentioned earlier women's suffrage. He got that completely wrong. He got the um, Dardanelles um, uh, debacle entirely wrong as well, um, which at the cost of 160,000 Allied casualties. He, the idea itself was brilliant, but the way it was carried out um, uh, was, was, um, was appalling. And uh, although he wasn't responsible for the day-to-day operations, uh, he kept them going long after it looked um, impossible. Um, The gold standard, we returned. uh, He was Chancellor of the Exchequer when we returned to the gold standard at the wrong time and at the wrong level, as J.M. Keynes proved. He supported King Edward VIII in the abdication crisis. Um, he appeased the, uh, there were several strategic errors in the Second World War. Um, uh, going to the defence of Greece, for example, was um, pretty disastrous. He um, uh, appeased the trade unions in his second ministry, his peacetime ministry, uh, which led to wage price inflation. Um, there are loads of examples of, uh, of mistakes he's made. But the great thing about Churchill, unlike all politicians, is that, sorry, many other politicians, <laughs> should I say, is that he really did learn from them. Uh, the, the Dardanelles, for example, he never 
once overruled the chiefs of staff during the Second World War when they united on a on a policy. So, um, and you see it again and again. I mean, you mentioned also um, with regard to women's suffrage. Once women had the vote, he jolly well made sure he went out of their way to his way to craft policies that would attract the female vote. And in fact, in the 1955 and 1959 general elections, the Conservatives wouldn't have won had it not been for the women's vote. Mm-hmm. His actions, or perhaps lack of, during the Bengal famine of 1943 is one of the things that people often talk about when criticising Churchill. So and th- three million people died during this famine. How culpable was he for this? And could, could he have done more, do you think? He was absolutely not culpable in the slightest. It's appalling, this myth that has um, been created about this. In October 1942, a huge cyclone hit... Um, hit eastern India and it destroyed the rice crop and it also destroyed lots of the roads and railways to which um, which were needed in order to uh, uh, to feed the um, the population which was therefore going to starve as a result. Now in the past we were able to bring huge amounts of rice, this isn't the first time the cyclone had done this, but in the past in peacetime we were able to bring in rice from Burma and Thailand and uh, Malaya and various other places um, to feed the populations, none of which we could uh, have access to because the Japanese wouldn't let us. Um, we also had Indianized the um, administration from 1935 onwards. And so uh, local governments, which were Indian, uh, dominated by Indians, um, were responsible for famine relief, and uh, as well as the British Raj. And the Viceroy, Lord Linlithgow, didn't do a very good job, neither did Lord, Lord Wavell at the beginning either. And so there, there is an element of British culpability. But there's also Indian culpability, because they didn't, they refused to sell um, rice to the uh, Bengal government. There were any number of things that did go wrong, but we actually had Japanese U-boats in the Bay of Bengal. And the idea that um, that huge amounts of grain could be um, could be shipped in there um, was uh, was frankly strategically wrong. Uh, Churchill wrote desperate letters to. Uh, to Franklin Roosevelt and others to try and get as much grain in there as possible. And the idea that he, um, uh, that he was happy to see people starve is a um, complete libel on him. I wanted to ask you also about his views on imperialism and another criticism that has been levied at him yeah. over the years. So, he, yeah, he's often um, accused of being a racist who perhaps had these, you know, these Victorian views, mm. even even about thing, even about being uh, about white superiority. Um, yes. What's your take on this? Well, my take on this is that he he. It's very easy to forget that he he was actually born 144 years ago. It would have been strange if he hadn't believed in white superiority, because however obscene and ludicrous we see it to be today and know it to be today because of science. Um, Back in those days, uh, Charles Darwin was still alive when Churchill was at school, and people assumed the Darwinist theory of evolution of um, species could be extended to races as well, and therefore did believe that uh, that white people were superior to to non-whites. And um, you have to see this, therefore, in its proper historical context. It would be like complaining about Oliver Cromwell and saying he wasn't in favour of socialised medicine. What um, Churchill took from this concept of um, of, uh, white superiority was that the whites 
and certainly the British whites at least, had a profound moral duty to take care of the natives under their um, under the control of the British Raj. And this was something, a, a, a duty that he uh, found, a paternalist duty, of course, but one that he actually committed himself to for his lifetime. He believed in the British Empire, and it was not just because the Britons would do well out of the British Empire. He believed that everybody would. And... Looking to 1945, so Churchill got got us through the war. Is, is something that everyone says about him. It seems could seem interesting then that he experienced a landslide defeat in the 1945 general election. I mean, he's you know we've just got through the war, victorious. Could you explain maybe the political situation yes. at this time? Although he was personally extremely popular. Um, Although I do think that quite a lot of people thought that he was exhausted, and they were right to to think this. Uh, and when he went around the big cities, especially the northern and midland cities, in the uh, 1945 general election, he was acclaimed, and and thousands of people turned up to cheer him. But uh, he wasn't on the ballot paper, except in one constituency, and so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of people who were still represented by older Pisa uh, Conservative MPs. And the Labour Party was offering a really new society, a, a mass nationalisation, uh, what they called the New Jerusalem. And a lot of people, um, the National Health Service and so on, a lot of people wanted that. And so that's what they voted for. And what was Chir- do we know what Churchill felt about this election? Yes, he felt he felt immensely um, uh, hurt and let down, and in the way that you would imagine. Um, but uh, his wife, very famously that uh, day, said, "Well, um, it might be a blessing in disguise." And Churchill said, "Well, in that case, it's extremely well disguised." <laughs> um, and um, but he went off to do some painting in uh, in Italy on Lake Como and start to get his breath back. And uh, he very soon afterwards recognised that if he had actually won that election, it would have completely broken his health. If Churchill was around today, what kind of politician do you think he would be? I think um, Churchill would have been a pretty good politician nowadays. Um, I think he'd be great on Twitter, for example. Um, because well, he was quite a funny man. He was hilariously funny, and lots of his jokes could be fitted into 280 characters. Uh, he, was, uh, he was perfectly capable of brilliant repartee. Um, he put down hecklers superbly. He was quick-witted. And so, actually, I think he'd have a massive... He'd have a far bigger Twitter following than Donald Trump, for example. You know, he was very good on uh, radio. He wasn't very good on television, but I think that had he realised today, of course, you have to be good on television as well. So he'd have worked out how to have uh, mastered that medium just as he mastered the medium of radio. And, of course, here was a man who had courage, who learnt from his mistakes, um, who was immensely eloquent and had foresight. And those are uh, qualities that are needed in every age, not just his. One thing that I'm quite curious to get your stance on is during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, he warned about Soviet influence in Europe and he even promote, he promoted European unity. Um, what do you think his take would be on the current situation in the UK with regards to Brexit, etc.? I, I really do think it's impossible to say. He, um, you know, he died 50 years before the Brexit referendum. So... Um, his daughter, Mary Soames, said, don't try and play the game, what would Winston do? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not about to do that. That's fair enough. Um, I'm going to end the podcast on some 
quick questions. So which of Churchill's speeches for you is the most impressive? I think the 5th of October 1938, when he is denouncing the Munich Agreement, was um, just as great as any of the wartime speeches. And what's your reason for that? Um, He has got the whole of the House of Commons against him. He um, is able to articulate with, uh, despite being barracked and shouted at, um, a totally um, logical and, as it turned out, completely correct um, critique of what everybody else at the time thought was uh, was the right thing. He did it with immense bravery, with total eloquence, and it reminds um, us of something that he'd said as a 23-year-old um, a boy, really, um, which is that um, if you are able to master the power of oratory, you have a power that is greater than those of kings. And he possessed a real sense of humour, as we've said. Can you tell us about a, a joke of his? OK. His, um, his private secretary came to uh, him and said that their cook had been made pregnant as the result of a nocturnal assignation with a man in the street in Verona. And Churchill immediately replied, obviously not one of the two gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> What did you make of um, the film The Darkest Hour starring Gary Oldman? I loved it. I thought that the prosthetics that um, Gary Oldman carried made him look just like Churchill and sound just like Churchill. He had that twinkle in the eye that uh, Churchill had. I thought he captured the personality very well. Um, There were, um, I mean, there was huge amounts that's that's invented, of course. My wife refuses now to watch history movies with me because she says I'm far too pedantic and I spend the whole time tut-tutting. But nonetheless, the important part of that movie was um, really that it was a positive um, uh, representation of a very great man. Finally, so Churchill was voted the greatest Briton of all time by the public in 2002. Do you agree? Um, Of course I do, but I also, but not to the extent that I don't see his faults and failings. Of course I do think that he was the greatest Briton of all time. And I think that this concept of destiny, just to go back to the the first question you put to me, um, is absolutely central to it. He had had so many... Um, moments in his life that uh, that he nearly died, and as a result, he did think that he was being specially kept for uh, alive for, for to do great things for Britain and uh, and for London and the empires. He put it when he was a sixteen-year-old schoolboy, he thought he was going to save Britain and London and the empire. He remarked to his friend, didn't he? He said, "I'm going to save the country." Precisely yeah. that in 1891, at the age of sixteen, and then half a century later. He did precisely that. It's uh, it's sort of weird and uncanny, um, really, but it's also um, the reason that we're able to speak freely in this country today. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. For listeners who want to learn more about Churchill, Andrew's latest book, Churchill Walking with Destiny, is out now. And also, Andrew will be giving a talk at our York History Weekend on Sunday, the 21st of October. So you can find more information about that on our website at historyextra.com. So thank you again, Andrew. Thanks indeed. That was Andrew Roberts. And you can read a piece by him on Churchill in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Abraham Lincoln... Thomas Cromwell and the Anglo-Saxons, as well as a special supplement on the end of the First World War. 
Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats now. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.